Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Our extra episode this week is with Thant Mient U, who's written a remarkable book about the hidden history of Burma. And we're going to be talking about what that history teaches us about democracy and the state of the world. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Improve the quality of your solitude with a subscription to the LRB. They'll send you exceptional analysis of the politics, economics, sociology and science behind the crisis and reportage from around the world, but also gloriously unrelated, richly immersive distraction from the world's best authors and critics writing about history and philosophy, art and technology, fiction and poetry. Just go to lrb.me talk and get your first 12 issues for just £12. That's lrb.me talk. We recorded this conversation a few days ago on Thursday. Thant is speaking to us from Rangoon. He's also spent some time in Cambridge. He studied here and I met him here first. He is extremely intimately connected with the story of Burma and its recent history. But I started by asking him a basic question about names. Why does he want to still speak about Burma and not Myanmar? I prefer the name Burma. It's the name that has been used since actually before colonial times. Myanmar is the word that has always been there in Burmese to describe the Burmese-speaking Buddhist majority of the country. It was a change that was made by the military junta in the late 80s, kind of as part of a nativist or ethno-nationalist uh, shift in, in politics. So but my preference is, is personal, uh, but I do think that the change in the name also reflects uh, a certain type of shift in politics that happened in the, in the late 1980s and 1990s as well. So that leads into one of the many big questions we're going to talk about, which is, what do we mean when we talk about the Burmese nation? And it does connect to something that we were talking about on Talking Politics just this week in a very different context, which is Britain's attempts, slightly ham-fisted attempts to grapple with its imperial history in its contemporary politics. There's a lot in your book, and this is an incredibly rich story. But if you can just give us a framing for thinking about what we mean when we talk about the Burmese nation, the role that British imperial rule had in constructing that, and just in a way how hard it is, and some of the reasons why an attempt to make it a nation in ethno-national terms has been a political imperative for some people, just how hard it is to conceive in unitary terms of a Burmese nation. I guess the best way to think about it is that you had in Burma for over a thousand years these different kingdoms in the Irrawaddy Valley, and they were ruled by Burmese kings. It's a monarchy that goes back to medieval times. And that was the core of what is today geographically Burma or Myanmar. But in the highlands of the country, about a third of the country in the hills going up to Tibet and, and China, Yunnan, Thailand in, in the east, you had other peoples and other polities that were never really part of that Burmese state or the Irrawaddy Valley state. And then in the south west of the country, along the coast near Bengal, you had a different kingdom, the Kingdom of Arakan, which was its own kingdom until just a few decades before British colonialism. So you had these three different 
quite different parts of what is today Burma coming together only under British rule. And so when Burmese nationalism took root in the early 20th century in opposition to that colonial rule, it was very much rooted in that Burmese state, the Irrawaddy Valley state that had existed before. And it had to, as part of its nationalist sort of drive, try to meld these other parts of the country around that nationalist movement as well. Of course, that's not a unique story to Burma. I mean, that is a story of many forms of colonial rule that the colonizing state constructs something which either doesn't fit or has at its core only one part of what then has to become the nation. Are there distinctive Burmese features to this, including, and you describe this in your book, there are parts of Burma that were never even under those conditions really assimilated with this national project? Yeah. So when the British took, I mean, the British took over Burma in three different kind of episodes from the early 19th century, 1824 to 26, all the way up to 1885. And in 1885, they basically decapitated the state almost literally, taking away the king, abolishing the monarchy. There was a very bloody pacification campaign as well. And so the Burmese nationalist movement looked back to that period of, of monarchy and, and even if they didn't want to restore the monarchy, they wanted to restore what they saw as this Burmese kingdom. Now, in the highlands, which I'd mentioned before, I think what makes Burma a little bit distinctive from many other countries is just the sheer diversity of the different peoples, languages, ethnicities, very fluid ethnicities in, in many areas that have been present and, and still are present today. So you can go to a part of the country now where the people at the bottom of the hill will speak an entirely different language from a completely different language family than the people at the top of the hill. And in between at another altitude will be yet another ethnicity, yet another cultural tradition as well. So there are dozens and dozens of different languages and identities in different parts of the country. That's one. The second is that British colonialism had as part of it the annexation of what is today Burma into the British Indian Empire. And so the entire bureaucracy was imported from India, but also with it came an enormous migration of, of Indian people to fill both bureaucratic and professional roles, but also to provide the cheap labor for the colonial economy that developed. And so that additional element of a massive migration of people from what we would call South Asia today was also a big part of the identity or, or race story in, in Burma as it developed over the 20th century. And when we get to the birth of Burmese independence after the Second World War. And again, this is a story that in many ways will be familiar to people in other contexts. And of course, it directly intersects with Indian independence and then with partition. And you have a colonial attempt to construct a nation which has all sorts of arbitrary qualities to it. And then you have a national independence movement that has to decide whether it's going to borrow that national identity or try and create a new one. Is the Burmese case distinct again in that context when we think about post-Second World War independence movements? I think the British never really tried to create a nation in Burma. I think that was a big part of the problem. So Burma was a sort of afterthought. It was annexed in 1885 by, by Randolph Churchill for no really good strategic reasons at that time. And then it was ruled again, not like Ceylon as a separate colony, but as part of, of India with these imported institutions. And, and then British rule lasted only 60 years in, in the bulk of the country, the main part of the country. So within the, the memory or the lifetime of a person. And so the institutions that the British left behind were very weak. And there was never really any attempt to try to build a nation out of what became the geographical entity of Burma and then the, the independent state of Burma. And so if we go, if we sort of fast forward to, to World War II, you had the Japanese invasion, you had 
the complete destruction of the of the economy during the war and under Japanese occupation. And then after World War II in 1945, 1946, Burma was again an afterthought. It was an imperial afterthought at a time when Britain had so many problems at home, when Indian partition was looming by 1946, when there were problems elsewhere in the empire. Britain was in many ways, or the Atlee government after 1946, was, was quite keen to simply leave Burma on his best terms possible. And so it left behind these weak institutions, it left behind a country that was still incredibly divided along ethnic lines. And it also left behind a nascent communist insurgency, which then sprung out into the open immediately after independence and plunged the country into the civil war that we've had ever since. What a lot of people will know about Burma or Myanmar, as they may think of it, really comes through the story of one person, Aung San Suu Kyi. Um, certainly in the West, and many people in the West, and we, we need to talk about this, many people in the West feel that they misunderstood her. That's putting it politely, I think. But her story connects to what we've just been talking about because of the role that her father played in that post-Second World War independence movement. So just before we get on to her political career itself, just tell us how her life connects to the life of her father. So in the 1930s, you had the kind of rise of, of a more radical Burmese nationalism. This was after the, uh, the Great Depression, the, the loss of jobs, the loss of the alienation of land from, from Burmese farmers. You had people being attracted to both right-wing as well as left-wing politics as they saw it from, from Europe and from, from elsewhere. Her father was a very young student at the time who then left Burma and tried to make contact first with the Chinese communists and then with the Japanese he then led a, a new Burmese army that was formed under the Japanese during, during World War II. And at age 28, 29, he became not just the leader of the army, but became the, the leader of the nationalist movement. So he was, in a way, someone who the Japanese had groomed and, and nurtured and, and put into position in the war. But in 1945, in March of 1945, he, he took the opportunity to turn against the Japanese and then side with the Allies. And there could have been different histories at that point. It could have been that the Allies, after reconquering Burma, had saw him as a quisling and arrested him and, and put him on trial. But instead, what happened was that Mountbatten, as the supreme Allied commander in Southeast Asia, thought that he was the sort of wave of the future and recognized him as a partner of the Allies. And he became, by 1946, the undisputed nationalist leader of the country. And he demanded immediate independence from Britain, and the Atlee government in 1946 decided to invite him to London and agreed to a very short timetable for, for independence. At that moment, when the Burmese nation had perhaps begun to come together because he had reached out also to the leaders of different minority ethnic communities as well, and had managed to keep both the communists and the socialists and other political parties under him, he was only 32, 33 years old at the time, he was assassinated. And with that assassination, of not just him, but most of the of the cabinet, the country was plunged into into chaos, and then after independence, into civil war. Most people in the West, when they look at his daughter Aung San Suu Kyi, they have tended to think of her in a very contemporary context and through Western eyes as representing a democratic movement against military and autocratic rule, as someone who offers a vision of a future for Burma, which for many people in the West is more comfortably what they expected. And this is talking about over the last 10, 15 years. And yet, as you tell her story, her own vision of what she has been doing in Burma and, and what she did during the long period where 
she was not a free political agent is intimately connected with her father's story. It is a continuation of that story. And in many ways, it was backward looking. Is that fair? I mean, it was it was trying to reconstruct something that had been interrupted. I think that's the kind of mythology around her that that attracts a lot of people here to her. Because I think for a lot of students in the, or people in the country, the only thing they learn in school is that there were these Burmese kingdoms in the past and there was evil British colonial rule. And then came General Aung San in, and World War II and he managed to both fight off the, the British and the Japanese and win independence for the country. And then many people think that the decline of the country over the past many decades and the relative impoverishment of the country compared to many other Asian countries is because of this tragic assassination of General Aung San in 1947 and this kind of unfinished legacy. And in 1988, when there was an uprising against the military government at the time, people turned to her. She was then in her early 40s to sort of help lead the country back towards the right path. And so I think even within the country, people saw in her what they wanted to see in her. But I think she was always someone who was very much a product of, not so much a product of her father's legacy, but I think he was her role model in many ways. And I think that that sort of nationalist sort of feeling was always very important to her. But that then became coupled with something else, because in 1988, we'd had several decades of of failed attempts at socialist economic development. We'd had military-dominated government for a few generations. And in 1988, the mood of the times around the world and in Asia as well was, was a transition to democracy. It was just before the fall of the Berlin Wall, but it was after the, the anti-Marcos revolution in the Philippines. And so as part of this sort of new resistance to the military, people saw democracy as the banner under which they wanted to organize this resistance. And so you had this sort of coming together of both this sort of nationalist feeling that I think she represented very much, and then also this more general sense that that had to kind of move in, a, in some kind of democratic direction without having, I think, thought about it very much at the time. I guess, but for many people in the West, the paradox then is her relationship to the army and to the military rulers of Burma to whom she was in opposition. But as you describe it, I mean, her father, his formation is, is as a army man and as a military leader. And many people have been puzzled and confused, particularly recently, by the ways in which Aung San Suu Kyi seems to be so either comfortable with or connected with the people that in the democratic narrative are meant to be her fundamental opponents. I mean, the, the basic democratic narrative is that that was what she was in opposition to. Yeah, and I think that was always very wrong because I think she herself had said from very early on, from when she first entered politics in, in the late 1980s and emerged as a leading political figure here, that the army wasn't her enemy, that this was her father's army. And I think the, the idea of her and many other ex-army officers and army generals who flocked to her in, in 1988, 1989, was that the army simply had sort of gone off course in the wrong direction under the Nguyen dictatorship, which was the dictatorship of the, of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and simply needed to kind of regain its, its rightful place under some kind of elected civilian government, but still as an incredibly important institution in the country. So she had always gone out of her way to say the army wasn't her enemy, and she wanted some kind of reconciliation in a way between these two different stories. I mean, the army story, which was that they were born out of the Second World War. They led the country to independence from, from Britain. 
and seized power because they had to in 1962 and have tried to do the best they can to hold together this incredibly fractious country. And the other narrative, which is the narrative of the National League for Democracy, which she headed, was that in 1962, when the army took power, they began to go down the wrong path and they simply needed to come back to the right path, which was some kind of democratic government and an abandonment of many of the policies that they had instituted from the 1960s onwards. So it was two different variants of the same kind of Burmese nationalism rooted again in the same kinds of stories about the distant past as well as, as, well as the independence movement. And the army had sort of rejected her in the 90s as someone they didn't want to deal with, but she had always wanted her and I think sought some kind of reconciliation with, again, the institution that she saw as her father's institution. There are lots of wonderful vignettes in your book, and you describe both various moments, particularly during the 2000s, when in the West she was fated in a way that was almost cult-like. That kind of Bono um, Western belief that she, and it's partly to do with her persona, what she seemed to represent to people, that she embodied some version of democratic hope. And at the same time, you describe various scenes and various moments in her political history, which are so at odds with that. I mean, I was particularly just struck by the point at which you describe, I think, one of her early cabinets when she finally comes to power. She's 71 at that point, and it's made up all of men, and they're almost all older than her. And yet, for people in the West, she had come to, and we'll come on to the Rohingya story in a second, which is what's crystallized it, but she'd come to represent something completely different. Is this telling us something about the illusions of Western ideas of democracy, or is it about simply Western ignorance of those various parts of the world to which these ideas were applied? I can't work out in my own mind what the central illusion is that people in the West have. I think it's a couple of different things that happen. I think if we go back to the 1990s when, when she first sort of appeared on the international stage. She won the Nobel Peace Prize in the early 90s, and I think that's when some people first heard of her in the UK and, and elsewhere in the West. This was at a time when it was both a sort of end of history time still, when people assumed that democracy would be triumphant everywhere, but where Asia was also rising. And there were voices in Asia which said the Asian way of doing things, which might be different from liberal democracy, also could be successful. And I think at that time, the idea that there was this country in Asia that was struggling for a Western sort of brand of democracy, and there was this woman, this still quite young woman at the time, who was fighting these generals for Western values and human rights and Western democracy, I think was uniquely appealing. And also because Burma was such an isolated country, there was almost no international media access. You could kind of say anything you wanted about Burma and get away with it in the 90s. So people built up this sort of image and, and Western leaders, Tony Blair and, and Gordon Brown, but also in the United States, George Bush and others, built up the image that they had wanted of, of the country and, and, and who she was. I think there's that. But then I think on the other side, you have something completely different, which I think in the Burmese sort of imagination, this was about a certain type of democracy, but it was about the people kind of, in inverted commas, kind of reasserting themselves over a, a military rule which had become corrupt. Again, as we had said before, kind of restoring this legacy of Aung San. And it wasn't democracy in terms of different institutions and free media and an independent judiciary and all the other elements that we might think of, but the people simply electing and choosing the leader that they want. And that leader became increasingly Aung San Suu Kyi, undisputed by the time that the military put her under house arrest. She was seen as the sole sort of voice of, of resistance to people. So at a time when people didn't have ordinary people, didn't have much of a chance to debate anything, all of their hopes and the word democracy 
came to mean simply her triumph over the generals and her coming to power in some way. So I think if in the 1990s there had been some sort of transition away from military rule, it might have been different. But I think by the 2010s, after you know 20 years of, of such repressive government, the only kind of hope that many ordinary people had left at that time was simply that she would show the way towards a, a better and a different tomorrow. So for them, that's what democracy had come to mean. You say explicitly that some of these are genuinely problems of translation. So for instance, human rights, the phrase that was often attached to her and to her movement, just does not translate in the way that we might think. Is that right? That it's, it, it's actually the words often don't fit. The words often don't fit. And democracy is just a Greek word, democracy, the English word democracy. And, that, and that's been around for a long time. And so people can, can read into that what they want. But, but human rights and a lot of other words that are, that are sort of post-colonial, post-war words just didn't exist in Burmese, at least in the normal kind of lexicon until very recently. So human rights, for instance, the word kind of means human opportunities. So it's the same it's the same root word as an opportunist. It means a kind of permission or opportunity that you're given. There's no sense of, of a universal right in that, in that word. There are other words that are also completely different in, in terms of meaning. So even just the word economics in, in Burmese is this, exactly the same word as business. And so I think there are lots of problems in translation that also I think are part of the, the misunderstanding to some extent uh, between Western conceptions of, of what had been happening in Burma and local views at that time. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So when we get to the Rohingya, for many people in the West, this is now the great betrayal. Um, and, and many have turned 180 degrees. This person whom they almost worshipped, they now revile. And they've been shocked by her willingness to defend the army and to talk a language which doesn't at all fit with that human rights narrative. As you said, she came to represent the people and she came to mean democracy. And of course, once you then talk about who the people are for the reasons you said, because it may not have existed in that form previously, it becomes about forms of identity. It also becomes intersects with questions of migration and a whole series of very 21st century anxieties about ethnicity and religion. It's an extraordinarily complicated story. But do you want to just frame it for us? Why, again, in the West, did people so misunderstand and therefore were so shocked by her unwillingness to accept that what was happening was wrong? I think it's a few things that's important to understand. I think one, as I'd mentioned earlier on, that we had this huge migration from India. And so a lot of Burmese nationalist politics, you know, at the very core of the Burmese political DNA going back to the 1920s and 30s was this kind of move against that migration of people from India and a desire to kind of reassert this Burmese Buddhist identity contra this other identity that had been imported during the time of colonialism. And in the 50s and 60s and 70s, politics was a lot about, it was dominated by the left, by socialists and communists, and it was about a kind of modernization 
project through socialist policies, but that was seen to have failed by the 1980s. And so the army, in order to stay in power, drifted away from socialism by the late 1980s, became this new military junta, and fully embraced a kind of ethno-nationalist narrative about themselves and what they were doing and about the country as well. And so there was all around in Burma in the 1990s and 2000s nothing other than this sort of ethno-nationalist narrative about the past and, and the present and, and, and future challenges as well. I think she, when the political reforms began in, in 2011, was still, or she felt she was still in a very weak position. Whatever her own values might have been, for all the reasons we talked about before, I think she also bought in to some extent into that nationalist narrative that had been there as well. But in 2015, when she won a landslide victory at the first free and fair elections in a generation, I'm not sure she had thought through some of these issues, uh, in particular about the, the Rohingya. She, I think, wanted to show the army that she wasn't on a completely different page for them from them in terms of some of these nationalist ideas. For many ordinary people, populism, maybe that's the wrong word, but the way in which they, they view things was about not just getting the army off the back, but all different outsiders, foreigners that had come to exploit them over the past 20 or, or 30 years. And so there was that strong kind of anti-outsider populist sentiment as well. But one of the first things that she did when she came into office was she appointed Kofi Annan to head a commission on the Rohingya situation, essentially. And if this was someone who simply wanted to rubber stamp a sort of ethno-nationalist agenda, she wouldn't have appointed Kofi Annan. So I think she did want something different. But then events developed in a certain direction. The Rohingya had been so terribly treated and, and oppressed for, for many years by that point, decades in, in many ways, but many years, the past few years especially, that then there was this new insurgency. And all of a sudden, feeling in the country crystallized around that insurgency being an existential threat to the country, which it wasn't. And she was swept up in those events. And... We saw the horrific violence that then led to the exodus of 700,000 people to Bangladesh in, in 2015. And this was when she had just been in office for a couple of years. So I think there was a mix of factors. I mean, both her own values, her own national sentiments, the populist mood at the time, uh, the role of, of social media, which we haven't talked about yet, the army's own thinking about these things. But I think she was also a victim of the way in which these dynamics came together as much as she was the author of a particular set of policies at that time. Unless we think this has nothing to do with us, as you say, the, the counterinsurgency was in many ways modelled on British imperial forms of counterinsurgency too. You, see, you, you don't know her in the sense you're not close to her, but you've met her and you spent time with her. One of the vignettes that really stuck with me from your book is, I can't remember exactly when this happens, but she has an opportunity relatively early on to meet with a group of students and to talk to them about the problems facing the country. And she wants to talk to them about fiction and novels and the imagination. And she comes across as, I don't know, this may be ridiculous, but as slightly unworldly. Is that at all true? I don't think, I don't think she would think that. And I think she thinks that. <laughs> well, in, unworldly in people don't think that about themselves. <laughs> I think she thinks that in 2016, when she came into office, she rolled up her sleeves and, and was getting on with the business of, of government. But I think the tragedy, in a way, is that because, you know, 
not only was she under house arrest for, for such a long time, but so many of her colleagues from the 1990s had died. They had been in solitary confinement. They were old men, some of the people that she had brought into to government. They had nothing like the experience or the policy experience or the government experience that was necessary to to kind of take stock of where the situation was in, in terms of economic policies or, or the peace process then or anything else. And then, of course, you did have her own kind of interests, which go back to her time at, at Oxford in, in the 1960s and, and later when she was so interested in, in literature. I think she had wanted to, to read English and, and not do a degree in PPE, which is what her, her mother had wanted her to do and what she did in the end. And so she was never a sort of policy wonk. And then I think she also has, I think, deep within her this sense that government is about, and this goes back to her father's legacy, about setting a certain example, setting a certain moral example. It's not about government as a provider of, of services. It's not about government necessarily as provider of you know, an industrial policy or an economic agenda. It's about the leader providing this kind of moral tone and this, and this vision and this leadership. And I think probably, I, I don't think she said this in, in so many words, but I think she thinks that what's gone wrong in Burma is at its heart a kind of moral or ethical dysfunction. And that she's the person to kind of bring the people, again, in inverted commas, as well as her father's army back onto the onto the right path. So I think she has this grand vision in her own way on the politics of things, but not on the kind of nitty gritty of policy and, and government issues. There is a case for saying that politicians who think that the central problem of politics is failures of morality are unworldly, but that's a separate discussion. It's also true, you, you touched on it there. So all of this is then going on with Burma caught up in not just the force of democratization coming from the West, but wider international forces. So this is the age of social media, and we'll touch on that in a second. But the democratization moment, but it's not a moment, it runs across decades, is also neoliberalism too. And there is a question, and you talk about it a lot, were there points in the recent history of Burma where choices could have been made and were either thought to be impossible or were avoided? Different paths of development, different economic models. After the failure of military rule and the failure of that form of socialism, the alternative came to seem to be free markets and democracy and free markets seemed for many people to go together. But that produces a very, very distinctive kind of society. Was there a choice? There was a choice and, and there is a choice now. So the normal narrative is, as you said, I mean, it was the history of, of military rule and then resistance to military rule and then this sort of half opening to, to more democratic government. But the other way to think about it is that you had you know, the colonial political economy, which was a very extractive economy that benefited only a very few at the, at the top. Then you had three decades of domination of, of politics by, by the left, where the only opposition was further left with, with the Communist Party in insurrection and in insurgency at the time. And then you had from really the late 1980s, you had both the turn away to the right towards free markets and an opening up of the markets and an opening up of the country to, to foreign investment and, and foreign trade. But you also had an opening up of the border to China, which was then also moving away from isolation and, and just beginning its giant industrial revolution. And so because all of that happened at the same time as the democracy movement was beginning to attract the attention of Western leaders, and that then led to Western sanctions, the history of Burma in a way these past 20 years has been the history of this 
the evolution of this very strange economic system, which on the one hand is a, is a kind of capitalist system, it's a free market system, but it's been intimately tied to China much more than global markets until very recently. It's led to extreme inequality. It's led to the migration of millions of people to, to neighboring countries in, in search of jobs. And with the democratic opening from 2011, there really hasn't been any kind of rethink of, of that economic system because for all the different new engagements of the West and Western leaders who came to visit and advice from the outside, everyone assumed that this kind of liberal political transition had to be accompanied by a liberal economic transition. But what a liberal economic transition could or should mean on top of the system that had developed over these past 20 years of a kind of capitalism has remained undiscussed. And I think there are many different issues in terms of Burma's development path going forward, where I think the country does have many options. It has huge potential because of its geographic location between India and China and Southeast Asia. It has lots of natural resources. It has a young population, but yet it gets kind of drawn back because the assumption is just now we leave it to free markets. We open up the borders to foreign investment even more, and that will solve all the problems. And so would you say it is still fundamentally an extractive system? Yeah. So the Burmese way to socialism, which was this autarkic kind of socialist program, collapsed in 1988. Since that time, we've seen a degree of economic growth, but almost purely based on extraction. It's either the export of primary commodities like timber and jade, which is what Burma is the main source of the world's jade, to China worth billions of dollars, or natural gas offshore, which has been exploited by Western oil companies for, for export both to China and to global markets. So it's a kind of growth that's dependent almost exclusively on extractive industries and also to some extent some agricultural commodities as well. And there hasn't really been any sort of real development in, in any other way. And you still have from the days of Burmese socialism, state control of, of some of land and, and state-owned enterprises, but most of these are are not functioning or, or not productive in, in any way. So in a way, Burma is at this sort of crossroads in terms of, of its economy. It has huge potential. It has still some state assets and state-owned enterprises. It has seen over the past 10 years of this kind of quasi-democratic opening, more social spending, more attempts to rationalize macroeconomic policies. And so it could try to copy the success of, of many of its East Asian neighbors. But whether it does that or whether it assumes, again, that a kind of neoliberal formula of simply depending on markets, simply opening up, is going to solve the problems, I think that's the big set of decisions before the country today. Another way you could say Burma is at a crossroads, and this makes Burma distinct from China, it's being pulled towards China, but Burma also has Facebook. And the internet is Facebook, I believe, in Burma. And then many people want to blame Facebook for much of what's gone wrong, including some of the worst aspects of the Rohingya crisis. So you've got a you've got a society that is pulled between China and Facebook, which is at least potentially deeply destabilizing. There's so many things that are deeply destabilizing. I mean, we still have an active armed conflict in the country. So where the Rohingya had left from or escaped from, there is a whole new insurgency of the Arakan army, which is the other minority, but it's a Buddhist minority group that has gone from strength to strength, displaced 100,000 people. The fighting has displaced 100,000 people over the last 12 months alone. So we have active armed conflicts in different parts of the country. We have China looming across the border. 
now many, many times richer than Burma, when in the past it was about the same per capita GDP as recently as maybe 30 years ago. And just the sheer weight of the Industrial Revolution going on in China. I think with social media and Facebook, I would say a couple of things. One is that this is a much freer country. I mean, just the fact that I'm, I'm speaking to you like this from, from Rangoon, I mean, it's a much freer country than it was 10 years ago, infinitely more so. The internet is, is almost free. There are cases of, of journalists who've been locked up. There are criminal defamation laws on the books. But in general, debate is relatively free. A lot of that happens on the internet. A lot of that happens on Facebook. Every day, there are you know, thousands of different posts from, from different institutions and, and prominent political figures and, and tens of thousands of different comments and, and live streaming events and everything else. And so that's a big positive. I think in connection with the Rohingya story, we have to be careful in, in ascribing sort of blame to Facebook in this way. So I think Facebook and social media generally, or Facebook, was, was a big part of creating a certain mood. And in 2012 and 2015, you had communal violence in this country, which was the backdrop to then the violence that happened against the Rohingya in 2016, 2017. But a lot of that initial violence, the communal riots in 2012, for instance, that involved the, both Muslim and Buddhist communities in, in Arakan or in Rakhine State, actually happened before the telecoms revolution here, happened before the internet was available to 99% of people. So a lot of the violence happened before. It's not the case that you had Facebook and suddenly that stirred up mobs of people to go and kill their Muslim neighbors. I think it was it's a much more complicated story than that. And the violence that actually happened in, in 2016 and 2017 was part of an army operation against what the army perceived as being a new insurgency, as well as attacks on, on civilians in those Rohingya villages. It wasn't something that was stirred up on social media at that particular time. Just to add to the complexity, I'm going to bring in two more things. Burma is also at the front line of climate change. And as you tried to suggest, the future for a country and a society like Burma might actually be much more open than we think. It's, you know, it's not on a fixed path to a certain kind of development. But there's also this thing looming for all of us, but for some societies sooner than others, which is a changing climate, a rapidly changing climate, could be the most radically destabilizing thing of all. Is that your central fear? Yeah, it could be my central fear. I think there's so many different possible fears in this country. I mean, we this is a country where in 2008, we had a cyclone that killed 140,000 people in a single day. We've had floods in 2015 that displaced a million people over a few weeks. So this is a natural disaster prone country. It's not clear if either of those older events were directly because of climate change, but the climate is changing. And if any of the projections are, are right, if we move towards a two degree, three degree warmer world by the end of the century, it'll be catastrophic for this country. I mean, so much of this country is low lying land along the coasts around Rangoon as well. And so if you think about it, I mean, I guess, you know, the, the, the main question is this. I mean, Burma has these different development options. It has this potential. But in order to realize that potential, in order to move down a development path, it needs a more activist state. It needs more state direction. Yet so much of what people want still is to come out from under what they have seen as an incredibly oppressive and corrupt state. So how do we move in time for climate change and in time to kind of catch up with or address China next door? How do we move down that development path, which will require a stronger state, 
when the state itself is so contested with so many different ethnic minorities demanding rights as well as having their own insurgencies where the bulk of the Burmese population still want to move away from from state control. Is it possible to square that circle in time for these kinds of challenges like climate change? And then how do you do that when you add to the mix competitive politics through new democratic structures? We're having elections in a few months' time, so at a time when the country needs to kind of come together around an agenda to address climate change, to address China next door, to try to bring about reconciliation between different ethnic groups as well as between different communal groups. We have yet another round of elections, first-past-post elections inherited from colonial times. And so, you know, how is this going to be possible? And it's on the one hand, you can kind of see the path. On the other hand, given the institutions we have, the legacies we have, the history that we have, in a different way, it's, it's hard to be optimistic. And those elections are happening in the time of the COVID pandemic. And many societies, maybe all societies around the world in this pandemic have been given a kind of snapshot of themselves and a kind of x-ray of some of their both political and social strengths and weaknesses. And we're discovering things about ourselves this year. I think we're discovering things about America. We're discovering things about Britain, discovering things about New Zealand. Have you discovered things about Burma? Have you seen through to things that weren't quite clear? watching a polity and a society try and cope under these conditions? Yeah, it's been fascinating. I mean, on the, on the one hand, what it shows very clearly is that we have nothing approaching a healthcare, a modern healthcare system in this country, nothing approaching a, a welfare state in this country. And so this is a country where thousands of people, perhaps tens of thousands of people, die every year from treatable diseases, tuberculosis and, and malaria and other diseases. So when it looked like in, in March that you know the virus was both in the country and was going to spread and we we're going to have a, a huge outbreak, it was, became very clear that no one was going to be able to be treated through the public healthcare system, which extended perhaps you know a small fraction of the of the population. When that didn't happen, that was a relief. It hasn't happened so far. We've had only 290 or so cases and six deaths. Uh, that's in line with many of the other countries of mainland Southeast Asia, which is for, for reasons I think are still unclear to most people, have really suffered very little so far on the, on the health side. But Burma has suffered an enormous amount on the economic side from disruptions in the global supply chains, from the China border being closed, from garment industries here losing their, their orders from, from, from Europe. And so we've had millions of, of people lose their jobs, informal workers, construction workers, and they have nothing to fall back on. And we have no system of, of welfare that can look after these people. So, so on the one hand, it, it shows in a very glaring way how unequal the society has become and the extent to which basic social services, social safety nets are, are lacking in the country. The second is that in many ways, it's been a good crisis for Aung San Suu Kyi, that she has kind of stepped into the breach. It's been the first crisis in which she's been quite confident in a way. She's listened to the advice of her health experts. The government has done a pretty good job of testing and, and tracing people in, in Rangoon to the extent that we've had any kind of outbreak in the city so far. And because of her popularity, and she's still incredibly popular, people have listened to what she has said in terms of wearing masks, in terms of staying at home in a country where it would have been really, really difficult to enforce those things administratively. So in a way, it's shown what her leadership means in this country, for better or for worse. I think the third aspect is that impact on the economy. 
And it shows, I think, the extent to which we do need a much greater state role in this economy. The government has now committed uh, several billion dollars. It's not a lot in international terms. It's a lot here to the sort of COVID economic response. But that's where it's at this crossroads again. You know, how will it use this money? Will it move in a more activist state direction? Use the kind of strategic opportunities to think about the sectors that might develop the economy and move down a more state-centered development path? Or will it kind of fall back on, on a kind of neoliberal instinct of just doing enough to, to allow markets to recover in a few months' time and then leave it at that? So I think there are many big questions that the pandemic has kind of brought forward and and we'll know more, I think, over the coming months, especially as we head towards elections, which are going to be, and I guess no one will notice in the UK or elsewhere, it's going to be just a couple of days before the US elections in November. I want to ask one last question, which touches on what you said there. So I think at, at one point in your book, you describe a survey from a while back when the country was coming out of years of military rule, which identified Burma as the most generous society on earth, the idea that there were forms of social cohesion and sharing that existed beneath or outside of politics. I don't know if that was true. If it was true, is that was that a blessing or a curse? This is where it's, it's difficult. I mean, on the one hand, yes, you see this all around. You see a lot of the economy that's still not, however you want to call it, it's not commodified. It's It's not part of the of the capitalist market system that's developed over the past few decades. So you have Buddhist monasteries, meditation centers that are free. People give, not just willingly, but really want to donate to these kinds of establishments, but also to give to other charities. There's a huge history of, of volunteerism in this country. When we had floods a few years ago, literally millions of people volunteered to help those in need. So that's there. And I think for Aung San Suu Kyi, she wants to try to harness that in a certain way as well. But exactly where that should sit next to an economic development agenda is, is also not very clear. And I guess a huge question, it's, it's related to, to what you just mentioned, is that we are in Southeast Asia, we're next to some of the miracle economies of, of East Asia. It still seems to make sense that we try to move down that manufacturing development path. But given where we are in 2020, there's a big question mark, one, over whether that sort of manufacturing development path is still going to be around in an age of automation and everything else five, 10 years into the future, how we should factor in climate change. But even more, given you know the way in which cities are in this part of the, of the world with traffic, congestion, smog, where the best things in the city are big shopping malls, whether that should be the kind of aim of development in this country, that kind of consumer vision uh, that we have in the rest of Southeast and, and East Asia, or if Burma, as a generous society in some ways, even if it's ethnically riven and violent in, in many others, has other strengths and other things from which to draw. So I think, you know, more than anything else, I think we need to imagine in a democratic way, and perhaps this is what would give weight and content to new democratic institutions, is to imagine the kind of economy and the kind of society that the Burmese people might want and to debate that quite openly in the new space that it wants. Because I think unless we debate those issues, I think the democratic institutions we have will be filled with discussions along ethnic and identity and ethno-nationalist lines. And we've seen over the last 70 years where that can lead in this country. Thant's book is called The Hidden History of Burma, Race, Capitalism and the Crisis of Democracy in the 21st Century. I really do recommend it. 
It is deeply fascinating. You can find details about that and other writing, as always, in our show notes on Twitter at tppodcast underscore. In our regular slot this week, we're talking about Europe and Brexit. And joining me and Helen will be Catherine Barnard and Anand Menon. Do please join us for that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.